Dave and James, fancy seeing you guys here again since we uh, spoke, I think, 19 minutes ago. <laughs> we always have more to say, Scott, always. Yeah, I felt like, I felt like we cut off that conversation way too early, so uh, it's good to know that we can, we can continue it. For anyone wondering what we're talking about, the three of us were on YouTube from, from 9 to 10, and we're uh, talking about some of the same topics, certainly, that we're going to be discussing today. I, I still can't wrap my head around... Um, HSBC changing their entire uh, opinion, but we'll get into that a little later. Uh, James Seyfried, I see you in the audience. I just invited you up as well, uh, so you can check your DMs for that. And I know that Eric uh, from Bloomberg will also be joining to talk ETF today. Guys, we've got a lot uh, on the agenda for today. Just waiting right now for uh, Congressman Warren Davidson to join. Uh, he's been on the show, obviously, before, as you guys know, uh, leading the charge to fire Gary Gensler, the SEC Stabilization Act. Oh, he's here. How are you? <laughs> hey, doing great. Uh, nice to join you guys. Warren, I think I talked to you more than I talk to my mom now. Uh-oh. Make sure you call mom. Yeah, I know. Seriously. Uh, yeah, you're at the top top of my agenda. We're just waiting for a couple more people to uh, join on and get the get the speakers up, but uh, we appreciate your time. I know you only have about, uh, I think, 20, 25 more minutes here. I will call my mom right after this. I'm going to tell her that you sent me. Um. So I guess we can uh, go ahead and get started as the team starts to bring everyone up. Uh, Congressman Davidson, I think we should start from the beginning again. I know we've given this context before, but I think it's important as we always have new people filing in to to let them understand what we're talking about and, and sort of lay the groundwork. Obviously, you proposed the SEC Stabilization Act. Partially, uh, fire Gary Gensler has become the calling card of that, but it's obviously about much more than that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot going on. Uh, you, you know, some of the people that pay attention to, you know, this market, the crypto market, uh, are most attentive to this. But, you know, the reasons to fire Gary Gensler are pretty broad. Um, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission was originally created just as that, a commission. You know, five five commissioners so that there wouldn't be ties. Uh, but then they kind of went with a kind of superpowered chairman and they, they expanded the responsibilities of, one of the commissioners in making that person chairman. And it really hasn't worked well. Um, you know, maybe at times it did, but what Gary Gensler's exposed is there's, there's of course a Gary Gensler problem, but there's also a structural problem, you know, where, you know, maybe you could have Hester Peirce or somebody write a dissenting opinion, uh, but it doesn't really change anything. And so Gensler is also, uh, been able to move, way out of step with Congress and uh, even at times with Treasury and other and others, uh, he, he's got no way other than to get fired by the president of being reined in. And uh, he's he's put a super aggressive rulemaking path out on most things. He, he's averaged two rules a month. Uh, he's done it with almost no comment from the public. Uh, and then the one thing that he clearly needs to have a rule on crypto, uh, he says, no, it's already perfectly clear, so easy uh, that no one can do it. And uh, I I likened that to Hotel California, um, you know, a little adapted, but, you know, you can check in with Gary Gensler on anything. You're just never going to leave and get the clarity that you need. Even for the handful of uh, things that have been approved, you would never say that that's an optimal path uh, to implement anything. Um, when you look at rulemakings that he's done, he doesn't have legal authority to do some of them. So like the ESG rule, for example, would require 
different disclosure regime for all publicly traded companies. Um, and because of the nature of the disclosures in the supply chain, it would have impacts on privately held companies all the way down to family farms. Uh, and, you know, just one of the companies that I talked to uh, is a supplier to a company that would be required to report under this. He's like, I, I do about a million dollars a year with them. And it would take me about $30,000 in compliance costs to do that. So obviously I'm going to have to pass that through, uh, but so would everyone else. So, you know, there's, there's real costs associated with it. The idea that, you know, one unelected, very unaccountable bureaucrat could somehow impose that on the entire economy um, isn't consistent with our constitution. And that's essentially what um, the Supreme Court said in West Virginia versus the EPA. The EPA was trying to regulate carbon. And they're like, we're not saying whether you should or shouldn't regulate carbon. We're just telling you that there's no law that gives you the authority to regulate carbon. So you can't do that. Um, and that's that's the job of Congress. And that's the same thing here with, you know, ESG disclosures. If, if really the market says we need that, Gary Gensler doesn't have the authority to do it. He should actually be working with Congress, um, not trying to, you know, impose his will on the market. And that's largely what's going on in crypto. Uh, he should be coming to work with us. We should pass a law that provides clarity. Uh, I felt like there needed to be a law since I really, since I got to Congress in 2017 on financial services committee. And we've had legislation that's been bipartisan since 2018, but instead of saying, let me work with you to do that. He's trying to say that he's got all the, all the things he needs, except he can't even answer whether Ethereum is a security or not. So he clearly isn't uh, isn't providing the clarity the market needs. Uh, I could go on on all the abuses with a whole range of other things, but the the remedy is to eliminate the role of the chairmanship, have uh, a sixth commissioner appointed, so you have three Republicans and three Democrats, and then they have to work together uh, at a minimum. And in general, it's clear that when they don't have consensus, well, they have to work with Congress to provide clarity. And I think that's especially important for capital markets because we have, um, you know, 50% of the world's invested capital. I mean, we have this great treasure in the United States and we shouldn't allow Gary Gensler or anyone else to politicize it. Yeah, you talked about being early on proposed legislation for this. You proposed the Token Taxonomy Act in 2019. I think you reproposed it, correct, in 2021 or recently. And now we're seeing that we are supposed to at least get a markup in July on stablecoin regulation and potentially some other crypto-related legislation. So is this actually happening now? Are we seeing real progress for the first time? What what does it mean that they're going to be marked up? Yeah, so... Um... Bill's getting the way the way the process works is you draft legislation, then you notice it for a hearing. Uh, both of those things have been done, and then you take it into markup. And that's the committee uh, gets the chance to offer amendments uh, to the bill. And ultimately, once the committee has passed the bill, then it goes to the floor for a vote. And then the rest of the House membership, in theory, could offer amendments. And then once the House passes it, then it goes to the Senate, where usually, uh, sorry, where usually everything goes to die. Uh, they don't take up much legislation. So uh, the hope is that we can put enough, uh, you know, pressure on the Senate that they feel, yeah, this is a piece of legislation we need to take up. 
And let's say they took it up and they adopted a different version. Then you go to a conference committee that has members from the House side and members from the Senate side, and you work out the differences between the two pieces of legislation. Um, as If that can be done, then you land up with a harmonized version. Um, and, and then the same version has to pass the House and Senate. Once that happens, the president has to sign it. And if it does, then we finally have a law. So, you know, that that's a tedious process, uh, but at least it's finally further down the line because the House is going to to mark up legislation on stable coins in July and hopefully on market structure, if not in July soon. I look forward to seeing that happen and seeing the process. One of the head scratchers I think a lot of people were pointing at this weekend or at the end of last week was that the SEC just approved the first lever- leverage Bitcoin futures ETF. I'm sure you saw this, the volatility shares 2x Bitcoin strategy ETF. Basically, now you can uh, trade a Bitcoin ETF with leverage, but we still can't get a spot ETF. What do you make of that? Yeah, I I don't know. Sometimes I'm thinking they're trying to actually poison the well on this. Like, you know, they're trying to make it bad in the United States. Uh, You're like, why why would you do a leveraged uh, option versus there? And when they did the yeah, when they did the futures version, uh, the 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 logic is is you know with future contracts, then uh, there's a all those all those kinds of things because of the leverage and everything else, you get more know your customer provisions on who owns the Bitcoin, and you can't uh, you can't do wash trades in it, and that's the fear I think at the end of the day is a spot Bitcoin uh, ETF. Uh, creates a giant market where wash trades could occur and you know wash trades would would break some of the um traceability as to you know where where all the who owned which bitcoin and if you needed to solve a a crime um you know let's say there was a company that is based in ukraine and wired money to like notable u.s individuals um in theory we would want to solve those crimes uh, if it's on a public distributed ledger, you can follow it pretty clearly up until the point where you do things like wash trades. Yeah, I just find it interesting that uh, spot ETF, I think everybody clearly would be better for retail, safer product. And we're still getting more futures ETFs, which have marked you know uh, market tops in the past. And now you can do it with leverage. It just seems like we're on completely the wrong path. Uh, totally agree with the market logic. I'm, uh, I'm just sharing the the excuses, really. I mean, and anyone can find an excuse. The the challenges for leaders to find a way. Uh, I've certainly been working at it, but uh, you know, we're as close as we've been, but uh, we're we're not there yet. That's for sure. Yeah, and speaking of ETFs, we obviously saw big news that HSBC is rolling out cryptocurrency services in Hong Kong. Three ETFs specifically that they're going to allow people to trade. I mean, this is the same HSBC that was cutting off banking rails to cryptocurrency exchanges just in March and beyond. What I'm getting at is it seems like Hong Kong specifically and potentially China are seeing an opportunity here as the United States cracks down on this asset class. Does that concern you? Is that a fair narrative? Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong's been, uh, was was uh, great for capital formation for a long time. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party decided they were going to formally take it all the way over. Uh, so they were kind of out of commission for a while, and it seems like the Chinese Communist Party has resolved whatever back-end uh, relationships they want. So I, I would 
you know, tread, tread with caution in Hong Kong. It, it, it is, uh, you know, a degree of separation from the Chinese Communist Party, but uh, don't kid yourself, it's not really separated. It's it's just the Chinese Communist Party's uh, little spot market for capitalism. Yeah, but does it concern you then that China is effectively adopting this while we're shutting it down and that we're going to be either far behind or this is going to be a massive opportunity for them? I mean, obviously, all we talked about a few years ago was the China shutdown bans. It was never coming back. Yeah, I mean, I think it's smart. If you look at uh, some of the statements from uh, Xi Jinping, he, he's hi- highlighted that blockchain has the potential to be as big or bigger than the internet. And I think a lot of people, innovators in the space, see that same kind of potential. Um, you know, I, I, I am concerned about how the Chinese Communist Party is using all of this, um, you know, capability. I am definitely concerned, you know, go all the way back to, you know, when, when Binance, uh, you know, basically uh exposed the uh, ftx fraud um that's not to say binance wasn't doing the same thing they're just fully staked by the chinese communist party uh in a lot of people's estimation if they need to be so they're never going to have a true liquidity crisis until the chinese communist party won't cover for them uh and and some people fear that that's kind of what's uh you know a vulnerability within tether now maybe not something that existed all the time some people fear that's something there. So if you look at, you know, something that the United States, we've we've dominated pretty much everything in tech since the Industrial Revolution. I mean, we, you know, we, massive innovations even in ag, but, you know, certainly from Industrial Revolution on to, you know, automobiles, aviation, aerospace, computers, the internet, um, our capital markets with less than 5% of the world's population, we've got over 50% of the world's invested capital but in in uh crypto you know you've got at least 70 70 plus percent of the liquidity is offshore and you know hong kong and singapore and frankly gary gensler are working to make sure that we have less so it it's kind of the exact opposite of what we've historically done when it comes to innovation which makes it interesting obviously that we're seeing the blackrock etf proposed in this environment. I mean, the same week that we saw the SEC crackdown on Binance and Coinbase, now people are at least viewing it as a legitimate opportunity. I know James from Bloomberg is up here. I saw that he tweeted 50-50 chance of an approval or a denial. Do you think that that would be a meaningful step in the right direction in this case to at least bring some of this back on shore? Well, I I mean, I'll just say I think it would be disappointing to see Bitcoin be the first uh, uh, ETF approved when you've got people that have worked for a decade to get a spot ETF approved. You know, Bitcoin, I think, is or uh, BlackRock, I think, has only lost one ETF uh, filing ever out of lots of them. And five seven five hundred and seventy six. Yeah, they're five seventy five and one. Pretty good record. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty solid uh, batting average there. So. Um, you know, I, it, it's hard to bet against them, uh, but it is sort of like, wow, okay, so uh, it's it's a big club and you're not in it, comes to mind. And uh, when you look at BlackRock, some of their ties to China are concerning. Uh, and if you look at what they've done in the United States with respect to ESG as an example, you know, they, they, they bought enough ExxonMobil shares to have, I think, three seats on the board. And 
they use those shares, they use those board seats to say um, no to uh, an oil-filled exploration project uh, because it would be bad for their, uh, you know, ESG scores. Well, it's Exxon. They do they do oil, right? Uh, they're they're pretty focused on uh, pet carbon-based energy uh, production, right? And with the same uh, company behind it, BlackRock used their stake in uh, a Chinese state-owned oil operation to win the bid. And so all this ESG stuff doesn't apply to the Chinese companies. It applies to the American companies. And you see BlackRock doing things like that. Um, I got a lot of concerns about BlackRock. Uh, and, and it highlights, you know, kind of what's going on with the, you know, the phrase ESG. A lot of people are sympathetic to that. Probably people listening in now, you know, want environmental social governance standards and they care about, you know, the planet and, and all that. And that's being exploited to use essentially a social credit system, uh, which is rationing capital in the United States of America and often in a way that advantages China. Yeah. At a uh, glitch there, lifting my mic. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. It's definitely a head scratcher that BlackRock has been the uh, champion of ESG and is now going for a Bitcoin uh, spot ETF. I'm hoping that that means that uh, we can somehow put the narrative to bed that Bitcoin is bad for the environment. <laughs> Do you think that we can make that argument? Well, I, I think thankfully the argument has been made and is, you know, very effectively. Um, and, you know, again, I, in my look, there are probably people that genuinely uh, are concerned about the environment. They're also not trying to shut Google down. Um, so it makes me say, mm, I don't know that it's sincere when you say it's about the environment. Um, I, I think the, the attack on proof of work, uh, they'll pretend isn't really an attack on Bitcoin. It's an, an overt attack on Bitcoin when you attack proof of work. Um, and, and, it, and the reasoning is it's, it's more secure and you can, you can, you can overpower other, other types of security uh, eat more easily than you can, uh, you know, getting 50 plus percent of the hash rate to control a proof of work protocol. So, you know, that's a, that's a big concern, uh, is, is the, uh, you know, what are you going to do with all that energy kind of invasion of privacy? Um, my concern is kind of the other way, BlackRock being able to do more in this space, uh, given their hostility, uh, might be concerning in the long run. Yeah, and I have to ask you, I know you're uh, we're running out of time here, but the same question I'm going to ask you every time we speak is how can people here help, right? Uh, what can what can our audience do to actually affect some of this change? I mean, I, I feel uh, like even just tweeting hashtag fire Gary Gensler helps. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it certainly does. Um, you know, and I, I'll, uh, I'll share some stuff with you soon on the way we're raising money to try to do this. I mean, uh, one of the big lessons I got from uh, my time at West Point was, you know, to fight the battle you're in, not the one you wish you were in. You know, I think a lot of us, when we think about our government, we wish it works differently. Um, but the reality is uh, it doesn't. So how do we move things today? I mean, part of it is is still the way that it should work, which is public pressure, public awareness, public information. And getting this on, frankly, every members of Congress, uh, you know, House and Senate, everyone's radar screen that you really need to understand the policy 
And you don't have to understand the technology. You just need to understand why it's important. And you should support the stablecoin legislation. You should support, uh, I hope, the uh, market structure legislation. We're not quite there on either of them. Uh, so I'm hopeful that, that uh, there'll be products I support personally, but but um, I'm encouraged about the momentum. And then, you know, make sure you get on people's calendars. That really does make a difference. It makes sure that uh, the staff and the the member or the senator prepares for the meeting. <clears throat> and, uh, sorry about that. I think lastly, um, you know, the, the fundraising part is important. Uh, and why you look at, at who lobbies Congress, um, well, let's just say the, the, uh, status quo, uh, one, one way to look at Congress is they're really good at preserving the status quo, which is a polite way of saying they don't get much done, uh, except spending a lot of money to keep doing what they've been doing. Uh, it is a big ship, so it's hard to turn. Um, that's understandable. But the other part is look at, uh, you know, who spends the most money lobbying, and it's, uh, you know, health insurance, uh, maybe it's the biggest banking, certainly one of the biggest. And, uh, they're all interested in things that are broken, not getting fixed because it's working really well for them. Uh, so when, when you want to change stuff, there's almost always somebody that finds an excuse, uh, for why you can't really get it fixed the right way. And I, I just think making sure that people that need to raise money know that there's a way to raise money, um, takes away some of the concerns that people have for being right on the policy. Well, I hope we'll be able to have you back when you can uh, share a bit more about that. I think that's going to be really, really interesting and, and compelling. Yeah, I, I hope so. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm taking meetings this week about how to put the f framework together for the digital asset market structure bill. Uh, there's a draft out there uh, that that people have been commenting to the the House and Senate uh, committees on, and hopefully, you know, we'll we'll get all that input in. That's the way I did the Token Taxonomy Act in 2018, and at, in December of 2018, uh, Darren Soto, a Democrat from Florida, and I put that put that out as a totally bipartisan bill. Uh, but we wanted comments, and we thought that you know by the end of January, end of February we would have, uh, you know, the revisions out. But we had so many comments from so many places that it took till, uh, you know, really, I think, late March, early April before we published uh, the, the, the uh, Token Taxonomy Act in 2019. And, um, you know, we've got some things that we would tweak to it today if we were to bring that bill as a standalone thing. Uh, but the reality is, you know, it's certainly influenced what we have in the uh, market structure bill. Uh, but it, you know, what we're moving forward on is, is much more comprehensive than what that bill started out as, which is just to provide a bright line test for what is and is not a, a, uh, a security that's still relevant today. Um, it would provide a, a clear, uh, line on custody and, uh, the markets broadly solved that technology has broadly solved that. But the one thing that my keep your coins act does is protect self custody, uh, real clearly. So. I think that's one of the things that I need to see in the stablecoin bill and the market structure bill is, you know, got to protect self-custody, permissionless peer-to-peer -peer transactions uh, in both. And when it comes to the market structure, it's got to be a bright line test so clear that everyone looks at it and sees the same thing. You can't look at it and see 
like you know modern art where you know you get three or four different uh takes on it uh it needs to be like yep that's an apple that's not an orange and uh very clear to everybody oh look forward to seeing that thank you so much as usual for your for your time look forward to having you back very very soon and uh we will all be uh as i said every single time we'll be supporting you and for anyone who missed it uh Congressman Davidson and I actually had a podcast that came out just yesterday where we discussed a lot of this in depth that's pinned just above. So thank you once again. Yep. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the podcast. That was great. And, uh, uh, you know, hope you guys have a great rest of your conversation. Um, look forward to hearing about it. Take care. Thank you so much. Perfect, guys. So listen, James, since we have you here and you were invoked in that conversation, I saw that you said about a 50-50 chance of the BlackRock ETF approval, but I'm actually curious your thoughts on HSBC and their three ETFs in China and what that means. Yeah. So we actually have a colleague in China, Rebecca Sin, who I work closely with. And they, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the expert on, on China or Asia um, crypto markets, but it, the, it's just another signal that the Chinese government, the Chinese communist party is backing crypto at this point. Um, there's a lot of rivers that they're pushing banks to start banking crypto companies um, and my, as I mentioned, uh, Rebecca Sin, my colleague, has been very bullish on crypto growth in the U.S. Um, initially, we thought Australia uh, might be a hub because they were the first ones to really approve um, ETFs and they were doing some things. But she has obviously since changed her tune and basically said that Hong Kong, at least in Asia, and could be a, maybe a global hub, but at least in Asia and the Asia Pacific, uh, Hong Kong is going to be the uh, looks like it's going to be the crypto leader um, in the space. So, I mean, we've seen ETFs approval, approvals for years all over the world, right? I mean, I think it's the fact that it's China and Hong Kong that's so telling, but I mean, Canada, obviously South America and Europe, uh, ETPs, but uh, very similar products. It seems like the United States is the only place we're not seeing these. Yeah, that's U.S. is the only place that we're not seeing these. I mean, it's undoubtedly, I mean, the, the SEC always talks about how they're protecting investors, but really, I mean, I, you can look to any other crypto ETFs, spot Bitcoin ETFs. They've been in Europe for years. They've been in Canada now for years, as you mentioned. So it's definitely uh, putting U.S. investors at a disadvantage by not allowing them to have access to a spot Bitcoin ETF, which would be the most efficient, clear, clean way to get access to Bitcoin through the traditional financial rails. Um, and I mean, you can look at all the issues with different things going on. We can You can point to prime trust for other issues that are happening in the U.S. They're supposed to be U.S. regulated. Who knows what exactly is going on there? But an ETF would be the cleanest, safest way if you're using the traditional financial rails. Um, and the SEC just isn't allowing that to happen right now. And ironically, we, we we talked about a few ETFs. Grayscale applied for an ETF that's basically going to invest like 50% or 40%, I remember the exact number, of the an ETF will be go into international spot Bitcoin ETFs and the rest will go into Bitcoin miners. And that uh, hasn't been withdrawn yet. Uh, it, I don't know. I don't remember the exact date when it comes out, but um, that's that would come out in a few months, theoretically. So we could have potentially, even if we don't get these spot Bitcoin ETFs, which we've been talking about for the last week or two, Grayscale could have an ETF that literally puts 40% of the assets into spot Bitcoin ETFs and the remainder goes into Bitcoin miners. So it's basically like here, we're going to invest in spot Bitcoin ETFs that every other regulator has approved. Um, and then the SEC, I'm assuming, might have to approve it. I don't know. Uh, we'll have to watch and see if the SEC force withdrawal, but they haven't yet. So the gymnastics that we have to do here just to get these products listed, it's, I mean, it's astounding. When you hear that they're going to create something that's going to be a product that invests in other ETFs, 
And as I you know, asked Congressman Davidson about a 2x leverage ETF, we're getting every single product that can effectively be suboptimal for retail investors and not the one that, that we need. By the way, guys, the floor is open. Raise your hand. Anyone else uh, who's up here want to speak or contribute, please feel, feel free. Absolutely laughable that the SEC is hiding behind protecting investors while they turn around and and then approve a leveraged, uh, you know, a leveraged ETF, a non-spot futures ETF on in Bitcoin last week. It's just laughable. It's it, it it's nonsensical. I think we all agree there, Patrick. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that the approval of the leverage ETF, and to some extent even if there is approval, approval of a spot ETF gets to what I think is a long-standing negative trend in the U.S. economy, which is confusing financialization for true support of innovation and growth. Because if you really wanted to support the growth of the crypto industry in the U.S., you would be supporting point-of-sale solutions, self-custody, miners, infrastructure runners, the people who are actually building out and maintaining these networks. Whereas, you know, supporting someone's ability to leverage bet on it Great, maybe that legitimizes it, but that is vastly different than actually supporting a network of um, of the infrastructure that's actually running and ultimately receiving value from the network. I think you could actually make the case that it's the opposite. I mean, if we look at what's happened in the history of approvals of similar products in the United States, it's pretty clear, right? I mean, the CME futures uh, contracts approved in December 2017, the day that the Bitcoin market topped, the futures ETFs were almost to the day or week that the market topped uh, when we got those approvals just a couple of years ago. I mean, these products are used to manipulate price downwards, right? And maybe it's anecdotal, maybe it's a coincidence, but it's happened every single time. Dave, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's no coincidence. I think, you know, Caitlin Long is my my favorite person to talk about financialization of Bitcoin and why it's threatening. And the fact is that this particular SEC it, you know, believes that futures is the best market structure because that's where you know, the chair cut his teeth in the, in the financial markets. But the fact is that a spot ETF, which, which ha- requires physical holding of Bitcoin in a trust, uh, is not financialization, but leveraged futures ETFs is exactly the definition of that. And it, it is it is laughable isn't the word. It's just transparently imbecilic. Uh, you know, it is it is so transparent that the only reason for approving it is well, we said futures are okay, so we don't really care about you know protecting investors from you know the the ravages of spe- overt speculation in Bitcoin. But what we won't let investors do is actually buy and hold Bitcoin in a trust structure that will make it easier for grandma to own it. Uh, and for trust planning and estate planning and all sorts of other stuff that people assume, plus not to mention with custodial issues, uh, that, that it's safe. And so, you know, a spot ETF has a lot of that that the futures ETFs obviously don't and the leveraged ones don't. But the, the other point that, that someone made, you know, earlier today, and, and like Congressman Davidson said, is like, well, they're worried about wash trading. But that's why a spot ETF that's held in a trust structure that uses the pricing from uh, venues such as Coinbase, and there are others which are explicitly using software like NASDAQ Smarts or others like Aventus Systems or others like Solidus Labs to actually look for wash trading and prevent it is so important. And yet, despite that, they continue to point to it, you know, laughably as why not to approve it. So basically, it's very transparent. 
It's just political is what they're trying to do. And it doesn't make any sense. And it's clearly anti-investor. Wizard, what do you think of all of this? I mean, why do you think that we haven't seen this ETF approval for spot? Yeah, um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot to do with, uh, uh, you know, lobbyists and, uh, you know, uh, a whole bunch of different extraneous, like people trying to push back against decentralization and uh, power for the people kind of thing. I mean, I feel like that's pretty standard for uh, uh, USA and so on. But, you know, you're, you're seeing that, like, you know, in Asia, obviously, they've been uh, basically accumulating at the expense of uh, USA. And I feel like now, instead of like, you know, they kind of, uh, instead of being able to catch up, even though America technically has one of the biggest, you know, uh, wallets of Bitcoin, um, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like it's just, you know, the, you know, traditional banking and so on until they can get a good grasp uh, or not a good grasp, but a good hold on the assets, like, you know, coming from TradFi and working on Wall Street for like 15 years, you know, I, I could see why, uh, you know, the the powers that be will want to hold things back until they have full control. Uh, you know, people, uh, you know, the large, uh, you know, powers that be here, they don't want to like give up control over their assets. So until they can have a good uh, handle on, you know, them controlling the ETF, them controlling um, majority of the assets, the the market microstructure, the flow, um, you know, they don't want that to uh, kind of um, you know, be taken over. So that, that's probably why it's been held. I think that's probably a pretty fair answer. Uh, otherwise, you know, and that could be a reason why a lot of the DeFi stuff they're pushing away because it's kind of, you know, not possible, not really that easy to kind of uh, control that stuff on the blockchain. So it could be a reason why, uh, you know, they're kind of uh, pushing the SEC to kind of uh, go aggressively on those and make kind of Bitcoin to be uh, like a stronghold because it'll be much easier to pass uh, and control maybe possibly the ETFs on Bitcoin rather than some random, you know, third or fourth tier coin uh, on some chain. So yeah, that's kind of my second thoughts. Go ahead, James. Yeah, I mean, so the first thing I want to say is that I think part of the reason why they've they've gone through and approved these 2x leverage Bitcoin futures ETFs, and I'm not defending it by any chance to say that they should approve these and not approve the spot ones, but part of it is like, they can't lean on the same reasonings that for denying uh, a leveraged futures ETF because it is a regulated market. There's plenty of other leveraged futures products out there. So like the the reasoning for denying this, like they don't really have one that they can lean on anymore. Like there's nothing they can do, whereas they can still lean on the spot market and say it's not regulated and all the other things you talk about, loss trading, manipulation, what have you. But what it really comes back to is this, this is a political move, right? That they, Gensler wants more power. He wants to be able to say the SEC under his control, uh, basically put a feather in his cap and say he got the industry under control. He tamed the wild west of crypto by making them come in and register and do all these things. Like he's regulating via enforcement and he's basically holding this Bitcoin ETFs as as hostage in a way. Um, they're holding these, these spot Bitcoin ETFs hostage because until Gensler can get some sort of control and oversight of the underlying spot markets, which is blatantly what he's after, he's not even hiding away from that. He says basically that they want to have control over it, even though Right now, it's not really in their purview for some of these things. And I would admit, like, there's plenty of stuff in the crypto markets that I view as securities that make sense that the SEC should go under. But uh, I don't think Bitcoin fits into that into that wheelhouse. I, I don't think Bitcoin fits into that wheelhouse. And he's actually been quoted in the past saying that the exchange regulation also doesn't fit in their wheelhouse. 
right? And if we're talking about how they're going to track the underlying asset, that obviously is coming from exchange data. So, I mean, it's all kind of a head scratcher. I, I know, James, I saw you giving a bunch of uh, hundreds and, and thumbs ups over there. We kind of talked about this earlier this morning, of course, but it does seem like this 2X, they just can't reject it. So they have to approve it as James. Well, we've got two James, as James Safer yeah. said. Yeah, um, James Lavish up here. Uh, so yeah, the 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 issue is just like James has has pointed out is that they they've already approved the cash settled. It's easy for them. It's a regulated market, but uh, they can lean on the the past uh, the past denials for the the spot Bitcoin uh, um, ETF that they've already issued. So, but the interesting part is that now it's BlackRock. Right, so we've got we've got an entity that controls ten trillion dollars of assets, and then you've got Fidelity that just jumped in as well, um, you know, to uh, to start an exchange. They they control almost five trillion dollars of assets. So now you've got fifteen trillion dollars of assets that are jumping in. Fidelity is already they've already said that they're going to offer Bitcoin holding in their in their IRAs. Uh, and so whether that's just for employees right now, I don't know that it's not offered in, in their regular IRAs, but that's what the, they're all moving towards this, this space. And so there's two sides of the coin, right? So you've got, you've got BlackRock that is the, the, the monster, right? It's, it's the absolute behemoth that everybody loves to hate for good reason. They've got a, a lot of reasons to hate, uh, BlackRock, um, but on the on the flip side of it, it can bring a massive amount of capital into the space very easily. Just as James pointed out, it's very easy for uh, an RIA to use an ETF, a spot ETF that is regulated on on a an exchange in the United States, and not have to worry about things like custody, not have to worry about things like uh, you know tax, not have to worry about things like uh, the settlement and the counterparty risk. They don't have to deal with that because they they're using they a, a prime broker DTC e, the ETF is is regulated. It's very easy to get in and out of. This is this like it or not. If BlackRock gets regulated, if they get this ETF, this is a super highway for small institutions and RIAs to be able to bring hundreds of billions of dollars into the space, if not trillions. Period. Go ahead, Simon. Yeah, I was going to say um, the the whole argument of the market manipulation. You know, it it has to be what James said that the you know the player that was going to get this first has already been predetermined. Because even if you've got all those regulated markets, the objection to the spot ETF. I mean, we've been at this for what thirteen years now. Like twelve, twenty thirteen, we started trying to get the ETFs approved. Um, and the objection was market manipulation, but how does a futures, a Bitcoin futures product get its price? It, it's based on the same underlying market. And so whether you approve a futures ETF or whether you approve spot, to me, if I'm looking at it from, you know, let, let's relate it back to the prime trust issue. It, it has to be, if you're trying to figure it from the perspective of a regulator, it has to be custody. Uh, because what happens to an ETF if somebody loses a private key and they're custodying it? So, you know, but the whole thing of market manipulation, it, 
it, it just doesn't even make sense because that would relate to a futures product anyway. Um, and the answer to the question of why is always the same old um, markets, which is competition. So the the the, the key is in the title. Um, if if America could, it would try and ignore this market, uh, but it can't because it's too political. And it's been that way since 2013 when China first started trying to support the Bitcoin market, and then it flip flopped back and forth, and then the mining. You know, started finding new homes with each ban, with each unban, with each ban, with each unban. Uh, but it's always been that way, and it's, it's been competition and the desire for a country to um, support the innovation and what comes from having a politically neutral currency. Because if you give away all of the KYC data and you give away everything to another country, um, you know, we saw that with the Chinese ban when it when everything went to Japan and Singapore and. America's starting to experience the same thing again. So it's competition that, that drives it back in the end because you'd rather have a foothold uh, rather than have full control somewhere else. So BlackRock is the perfect institution. It's not market manipulation because the products will be just subject to the same wash trading and the same manipulation in the underlying price, uh, whether it's the futures or leverage or spot. I just think it's nonsensical that it would be a dangerous or harmful product to, to retail investors. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's ETFs for literally everything, like multiple reverse leverage marijuana ETFs. And if you go down the rabbit hole of things that we've seen approved for ETFs, it just makes this completely, completely laughable. But James, do you still view it as 50-50 for BlackRock? And do you think that it is possible they could jump ahead of the line? Um, so they wouldn't be jumping ahead of the line, first of all. I mean, they, the only one ahead of them right now is R shares so it's possible that they could be the first one out under even the current rules which like obviously kind of looks bad <laughs> like they're playing favorites but under the way the rules are set up technically they're second in line behind arc and 21 shares um so possibly they could jump to the front and yeah we're probably still around 50 50 but all of the the pro reasons why we think it could get approved are largely subjective and qualitative like just looking at who it is is blackrock uh, what's going on here. But if you look like just backward looking at what the SEC has said, what Gary Gensler has said, um, what the statements have been on denials in the past, uh, if you lean more heavily towards that and not towards the subjective, then it's less than 50-50 just because the SEC has been very blatant in their stance that they are not going to approve these until they get a regulated market, uh, spot market. Now, I, we think, Eric Melchutis and I think that it's possible that the SEC is We've talked about on here in spaces like this before that maybe Gary and the SEC are looking for a way to kind of save face. Hundred percent, they can do that. They can do that with Bitcoin and then still focus on the rest of the crypto ecosystem potentially. So that's part of the reason why we think the the odds are better than super low. But even still, even if you're BlackRock, I've said this before. Even if you view the odds as ridiculously low, like if BlackRock files this and they said we think there's a ten percent chance we can get this through to the finish line and get be first. Like the even the odds of that are just worth it to them because the downside isn't really that great, right? They you get the, they get a denial letter, they might piss off some people at the SEC because they have to do a lot more work and write these 80, 90, 100 page denial reasons. Um, but other than that, there's really limited downside to them trying aside from the cost in doing it. And BlackRock isn't worried about that, so it's just the, the it's asymmetric upside to getting approved. Um, yeah, but they would have to jump arc. They would have to jump arc twenty one shares, as you said. 
right? Correct. So there, there would have to be some, uh, they would have to do the, there again, the sort of mental gymnastics to disapprove one and approve the other for BlackRock to be first. Well, well, our 21 shares is filed with CBOE, right? So the, you file with an exchange and CBOE in their 19 before application, the file where they file for the rule change to launch a Bitcoin ETF, uh, they don't have anything about a surveillance sharing agreement in there right now. Now, I don't know if, if, I, if I'm CBOE, I'm doing everything I can to get Coinbase to come on and say that they'll do a surveillance sharing agreement, whatever else, if we think that this is a possible way that the SEC is going to allow this to go through. But theoretically, if, if, if CBOE doesn't have that and um, NASDAQ, Coinbase, and BlackRock do have that, all of a sudden, that, that, that's the exact reason that the SEC can deny or delay uh, 21 shares in ours. So they have ground. They, they could yeah, make they, the argument. With this specific one, very easily make the argument. Yes, okay. yeah, yeah. Because the thing that differentiates BlackRock is that surveillance sharing agreement. Whether or not that's enough to get through the SEC is a completely different conversation. And you also mentioned the important point, I think, that one is with CBOE and that BlackRock is with NASDAQ, I believe. And there's only two, to my knowledge, BlackRock <laughs> and then Valkyrie refiling to to go with NASDAQ instead of NYSE. Correct. I believe Valkyrie would need to file at 19 before as well with NASDAQ um, to get approved. But theoretically, once you approve one with NASDAQ, the other one would come right, right, on, right on schedule. Um, not a hundred percent certain. This is a lot of like legal and like really getting in the weeds type of stuff. And then also, um, I believe Invesco Galaxy filed with NICE. Uh, so they have a 19 before application that's also active. So you have it, you have active 19 before applications from all three major exchanges where a crypto ETF would theoretically launch right now. Um, but the only one that I've seen with stated having a surveillance sharing agreement in it, which is the thing that makes this slightly different than all the other applications. Um, is the NASDAQ one. That said, their Gemini and the Winkle Boss twins did file with a surveillance sharing agreement for their Gemini platform when they tried to launch their trust. But um, while I could make the argument that that uh, Coinbase might be a market of significant size, um, I cannot make the argument that Gemini is or ever was a market of significant size. So, yeah. Right. BlackRock clearly believes so if that's who they chose as their custodian, right? Exactly. Speaking of custodians, you kind of mentioned Prime Trust before. I'm sure people have already seen my videos and arguments about Prime Trust, but we kind of have this situation now where the SEC is going after Coinbase, obviously going after all the crypto native companies in the United States and seemingly starting to play favorites towards Wall Street. BlackRock ETF, we're seeing, you know, obviously uh, Fidelity and Schwab and Citadel launching an exchange together. It doesn't seem like it's entirely coincidental. Do we think that, and anyone can answer this, do we think that custody is also going to start moving towards the big boys as we see things like seemingly obvious fraud at Prime Trust? Do we think that we're going to now get BNY Mellon and the State Streets and that's where we're going to now have to custody assets for this industry? Anyone could jump in if you guys don't have an opinion. I'll say probably, but go ahead, yeah. Chicks. <laughs> Yeah, so I I think it's a, I think it's kind of heading that way. There's a lot of and the SEC proposed a bunch of custodial rules that they were worried about. And one of my pet theories was when looking at the grayscale case, uh, our assumption that grayscale was before anything filed. Our assumption here was that grayscale was going to win the case, um, but that the three court the three judge panel that deciding the grayscale versus SEC case would basically the decision would be you violated the APA. You can't deny spot Bitcoin ETF for the reasons you gave potentially. And then it would go back to the SEC. And one of my pet theories was they might deny on that custodial reasons because they're trying to make sure 
will change the rules for what's a custodian and all these different things that would affect the crypto market. So um, I do think that things are going to go push more towards the custodial route. And there's a lot of um, TradFi companies entering. You mentioned BOML, and there's there's other people out there that are already investing and trying to build out their um, institutional custodian uh, offerings for uh, traditional finance companies from traditional finance companies. So I agree with what you were saying. Basically, it's the TLDR. Now, as far as I, I want to pivot a bit to price action, because we have not talked about the fact that Bitcoin started last week around 26,000 and ended the week around 31,000. Anyone, Dave, I know James, we kind of talked about this earlier. Do you think that this is strictly a reaction to the BlackRock news and at the tail end of such bad news uh, with Binance and Coinbase? Or do you think we're seeing a real turning here? I mean, I'm looking right now, we were talking about the decoupling. I have even more data here. Uh, it's a, The correlation, according to an article I'm reading right now, says that the correlation between the NASDAQ and Bitcoin currently at 3%, the lowest it's almost ever been. Yeah, there's a, there's a few things going on there, uh, in my opinion, Scott. And one of them absolutely is this this announcement of the BlackRock ETF filing. Uh, that's a big deal. And the and possibly even bigger is the, the Fidelity Schwab exchange. You know, like I said, this is going to be an on-ramp, a, a, a massive uh, super highway on-ramp for small institutions and, and investors who have not been comfortable enough with the space. It's, it, this would drive uh, mass adoption. It could drive mass adoption much, fa- much faster. And it, it, it legitimizes Bitcoin in particular in this space. And that's, that's a really big deal. But then another thing is, with all of the problems we're seeing and and with the uh, the SEC filing suits, you're seeing Bitcoin dominance rise again. And that and that in and of itself is moving more capital straight to Bitcoin. And so, you know, um, do I think that we have a choppy period ahead? Of course. We we talked about this in in on your show about the uh, the, the probability of a recession, but the decoupling of Bitcoin in my mind, only takes place once it gets to a, lar- a large enough uh, market value. And, and it's tiny right now. It, it, compared to the other assets in this world, Bitcoin is minuscule. You know, I mean, it, it, it cannot compete with bonds. It cannot compete with real estate. It, can, it can't even compete with gold in the size of the market right now, especially because gold has so much paper in it. But you know, um, until it gets to a large enough asset value where investors, huge institutions can can use it as a separate allocation in their portfolios until it gets to that size, which is in the trillions, uh, in numerous trillions, then it's still going to be correlated in some way in my mind, especially because it trades 24 seven hedge funds love it because they can whip it around and, uh, and, there's a lot of leverage in the space still. And so they use that to their advantage. That makes sense. Dave. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a confluence of factors that, that, that have been going on. And, and look, I agree with James's basic assertion. As I said on your show, I think that when we look back at this period, the, the amount of movement that we're seeing, are going to look like little tiny indecipherable squiggles. But the, the truth is that We've seen for six months on-chain accumulation by strong hands. We see that the hodlers, the long-term holders of over a year, are at the highest percentage in history. We see the hash rate at more than double where it was when it was at the all-time high, you know, in the 60,000s. So 
you know, I look at all of those things and, you know, it, that, that's kind of a fertile ground for reclaiming, you know, kind of erasing the, the carnage in Bitcoin from last year. Now, what's interesting is, is, you know, I know there's a few Bitcoiners that are listening. Nothing that happened last year, whether it be Celsius, BlockFi, Voyager, Luna, or, or FTX, none of those things invalidated the, the thesis of investing in Bitcoin. Yet it got sold because of forced selling because it was the available collateral to be sold. So one has to understand that because the thesis is still there, that <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people who had no interest in selling, and that's why you're seeing those statistics. When you look at where where the market could get to in size, it makes it a very interesting thing. And you know, from an on-ramp point of view, it's worth noting, and I think I've said this before, but you know, my brother's a financial advisor, and I talk to a lot of them. There are lots of financial advisors out there. I mean, you know, obviously there's over 15,000 RAAs and FAs in the United States of size. A huge number of them are interested and follow what's going on with Bitcoin as a asset and do absolutely nothing with it professionally because they can't. So, and there's two things that they worry about. They worry about that they can legally and they worry about that they can do it safely. So when James talks about it as an on-ramp, understand that we may not like, you know, the fact or you may say BlackRock is cutting the line or whatever, but BlackRock and Fidelity are names that 15,000 plus RIAs and a lot of others will trust. And so it can drum up a lot of interest in the space. And so I think that you're seeing people look at that and, you know, there's, there's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist. So, you know, there just isn't a lot out there at these prices to be able to accumulate if in fact this starts and people are always trying to run ahead, but the types of people who've been buying have been patient. And I'm not sure it's going to change anytime soon, but it is worth understanding that, that you know, how dangerous it could be to be short. Yeah, dude. Yeah, actually, the accumul- okay. Go ahead, James. Please. No, I was going to say is that the the, uh, the the problem with RAAs is that they don't have a they functionally don't have a way to cover their own assets, right? So they have to deal with settlement, they have to deal with custody, they have to deal with legal ramifications, they have to deal with tax ramifications. They Bitcoiners say to me all the time, and and it's true that they should be able to figure this out, but it's just not worth it to them because the downside is too big. It, they can literally blow up their own little franchise that they have inside of that fidelity, inside of those uh, major institutions, and they don't want to do that. It doesn't make sense to them. So yeah, I, I also, Dave, I, the same thing, talk to RAAs all the time, and they're like, I just can't own it. I, I can't do it. I don't have the ability to. And the personal fiduciary downside is too great for me to, to do it. So what this not only gives them the way to, but it gives it legitimacy. It, insta- it instantly legitimizes Bitcoin as a separate asset class for all of those potential investors, period. Which is why, which is why by the way, uh, that's why the the fifty percent where they say no anyway, even though they lose in court, they may want to do it so that it doesn't happen during this administration, because legitimizing Bitcoin is literally the last thing the anti crypto army wants to see happen. Yeah, actually, Patrick, I have a question for you. I, I pinned a tweet above uh, that says, following the COVID nineteen crisis, the percentage of built Bitcoin held across exchange addresses has been in perpetual decline, dwindling to a current value of 11.7%, 2.27 million Bitcoin, the lowest recording since December 21st, 
of 2017. Dave talked about, obviously, the fact you can see on-chain that uh, whales are accumulating, that, you know, uh, high-volume addresses have only grown. What are you seeing on-chain to support this price action we're seeing and that might support sort of this uh, bullish move we're seeing in Bitcoin? Yeah, well, so aside from the accumulation on-chain, one thing that we've seen this year is a huge increase of volume on decentralized exchanges and actually the ratio of volume on decentralized exchanges compared to centralized exchanges uh, hit an all-time high relatively recently. And so that goes beyond just Bitcoin, of course, because the large majority of things traded on chain are not Bitcoin. They're various tokens on Ethereum or stablecoins or ETH itself. Uh, but that shows that that uh, solutions for interaction with the crypto market that don't actually rely on exchanges are, are only increasing as a share of the market. And honestly, I think it shows that kind of the the um, cat is out of the bag and there's really no way to shut the bottle of people being able to um, interact on chain, buy things on chain and whether the U.S. gets on board or not, that part of the industry is going to move forward. A lot of people are saying that the SEC is coming after DeFi next <laughs> uh, for, for that very reason, probably. Yeah, and, and that, that may be the case, but if you look at the numbers you also have for example the total value locked in DeFi. so for people who don't follow DeFi market that's basically the amount that's locked in uh, DeFi protocols is currently at about 65 billion dollars which is one of the highest points it's been at since since the crash last june so so in a year uh and in that um you know increasing especially because you have ability to uh, unstake ethereum now so you have a lot of people staking ETH through liquid staking protocols and you know, specific protocols aside, the fact of the matter is that if you look at the look at the DeFi market and look at the trust that people have put into DeFi protocols, it's actually actively growing and increasing right now. Yeah, making it a ripe target. Wizard, uh, listen, you're a trader. What do you make of the price action that we've seen? Obviously, like I said, starting the week around 26, ending almost at 31, covering Bitcoin itself basically engulfing 10 weeks of consolidation or negative price action in a single week. Yeah, hello. Uh, can you hear me? Just want to make sure. Yeah, you're good. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, I mean, from a, from a, a you know, market perspective, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, historically, uh, everybody, you know, usually says that, you ha oh, you know, it's still correlated to NASDAQ, uh, to tech stocks kind of. Uh, but obviously, we have seen a, a, a big change in that uh, from a fundamental perspective over the last few months. Uh, the correlation to gold is actually the rolling correlation to gold on a month-to-month -month basis has increased uh, pretty significantly, uh, which, you know, uh, pushes into that narrative of uh, digital gold being Bitcoin and so on. Obviously, uh, you know, uh, I think DeFi coins, altcoins, you know, those have just been under pressure as uh, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum have, uh, you know, hit like new local highs. Uh, you know, Bitcoin obviously recently had the, the yearly high uh, just like three days ago. Uh, for me, I, you know, it's very strange because um, uh, the digital gold narrative is, is definitely pushing. So, you know, anytime you saw, uh, you know, things with recession popping up. So, for example, when the banking sector, the regional banking sector was kind of imploding a few months ago, you saw uh, Bitcoin kind of, you know, uh, post a pretty solid rally uh, and, uh, you know, which was definitely, uh, you know, pushing that digital gold narrative further. But then you saw, you know, um, 
a lot of consolidation as stocks, tech stocks started hitting new highs. You saw, you know, Facebook and so on uh, hit like two and uh, to three x uh, their local lows over the last twenty four months. Whereas Bitcoin kind of just consolidated, if not started moving lower as gold kind of hit the top line and started moving lower as well. Uh, but what you've seen over the, over the last little while, you know, you could kind of you there's a lot of uh, theory about uh, sort of market manipulation. Uh, that, uh, you know, Bitcoin was kind of kept under pressure so that the black rocks of the world could kind of keep accumulating. And, uh, you know, then you could definitely say there's a lot of cadence to that theory that uh, as we got closer into the, the black rock uh, and other ETFs and, uh, you know, uh, opening up of crypto in Hong Kong and so on, you saw this huge kind of squeeze up in the market. And uh, there's obviously technical factors uh, as well. You know, Bitcoin did since January kind of have a big move up. And then I came back down to that 25K level that a lot of people were expecting it would retest from a technical standpoint. Uh, and then now it's basically, yeah, like you said, it's kind of engulfed. It's showing a lot of bullish uh, uh, push up. Uh, for me, I kind of want to see it break through this, uh, you know, this uh, 32K level that's uh, been kind of, uh, you know, resistance at this point. Uh, but you can also say a lot of, you know, today, this week's resistance is next week's support, which is kind of, you know, uh, looking the same way. But if I see a good push out from here over the next uh, few days, uh, you know, I definitely stay very bullish on Bitcoin. Uh, all coins, you know, I'm kind of unsure about all coins. Definitely the trade that I've kind of been sitting on uh, a lot lately is shorting all coins and longing Bitcoin. And if you look at those charts, even ETH, and I'm a you know, big proponent of ETH, uh, nah, ETH that's getting destroyed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that chart is just so bearish. So I think, you know, Bitcoin is definitely going to lead the way up, which I think makes sense. The narrative is for it. Um, you know, I think sitting on Bitcoin is pretty, comf pretty comfortable. Uh, if we do see a pullback to 28, like we could see a big sweep down. If you look at like, you know, the daily chart at the moment, uh, you could see a little pushback over here in this 30K range. Yeah, 28. Yeah, and that was the yeah, 2021 so, lows between the 65 and 69 time. Exactly. So I could see a big push down and a sweep in liquidity, and then we push up higher, uh, which is kind of how I'm kind of positioning myself. I'm sitting in some stables looking to rebuy in that 28K range. Uh, I don't see us getting to 25K within the next... Uh, we were just there this week. <laughs> we were there like 10 days ago. Yeah. Exactly. I don't see getting there. You know, usually people who have kind of missed out are like, oh, we're going to get, I'm going to buy in 25K. I got like, well, we just got there. Uh, so I don't really see as, uh, you know, getting there anytime soon. I could see 28 to 28 and a half K, uh, 28.6, as you said. I think that makes sense uh, just so that because we've kind of pushed off like, uh, you know, two, three times over the last three days in this 31, 32K. Uh, but listen, for me, I see even if, uh, you know, stocks kind of pull back, tech stocks pull back, I think that's okay. I think you might see a little bit of a the correlation. Yeah, like I said, the yeah, it's breaking up hard. It's, uh, the, like I said, we have a, we have a very clear correlation to gold when we're going up and to stocks when we're going down. Is what uh, you if you look into the into the numbers. But the current correlation with exactly. NASDAQ, eight exactly. percent, depending 30, 60, 90, all sub point two correlation. So right now you can't just uh, blindly look at tech stocks and assume at these in this environment that Bitcoin's going to do the same. Eric and KJ, both of you guys obviously are go-tos for, for price action. What are you making of the market this last week after seeing sort of max depression with the uh, Binance and Coinbase news just uh, two weeks ago? Either of you can jump in. Yeah, sure, man. Uh, 
uh, hopefully you can hear me well, but uh, yeah, you're good. Basically, it was, a, uh, it was a very interesting situation. So we had, um, what, about five, six weeks of kind of chopping sideways and down there. And that kind of allowed everything to reset as far as uh, my metrics that I look at. Volatility hit lows that we haven't seen um, since like June, July of 2020, actually, um, was the last time that was comparable to. So, you know, when I see something like that and then we have a, a nice move up in the past week, um, it tells me that, you know, it's unlikely to stop here. Uh, yeah, there might be like a week or two of sideways as it kind of grinds up against this $30,000, $31,000 level. It's completely fine. Um, and uh, it might even, you know, might even come back down to like twenty nine or twenty nine five, completely fine as well. But uh, but ultimately, you know, that sort of expansion um, now is in play and you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking for this move to carry upwards and onwards over the next, uh, you know, month, two months, maybe even three months, basically to end summer, you know, kind of similar to, um, to that rally in 2019, actually. Um, so some similar to that, you know, where does Bitcoin end up? I don't know. Areas of interest are 35. You got CME gap somewhere around there from, uh, last year, I believe it was May, 2020 or 2022, I should say. Then you got, uh, 38.5. Then you got, some crazy ones in the 40s actually uh, one of my good friends actually is um looking significantly up there and he's quite good with uh, with higher term time frames like this so um i wouldn't kind of discount that as well but my main uh, the main thing that i'd actually be suggesting after that however is that you know there's a there's a very high probability that we'll see a pretty sizable pullback um, once this rally has ended all the way back to here Every, every yeah, time, if you, I mean, if you look at the halving cycles in general, you generally get a pullback that makes a slightly higher low, right? And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the pullback that I'd be looking for could be, you know, it's going to be probably anywhere between twenty-five to maybe even forty percent. Um, so it completely depends upon how high Bitcoin gets on this uh, current rally. But you know, it's got a lot of good narratives going for it right now, and it uh, and it has some momentum as well. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, it, it might spend a week or two here, but Upwards and onwards is the direction as volatility continues to expand. Talk dirty to me, Eric. Go ahead, KJ. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Um, yeah, you guys have already covered it pretty much uh, very, very well. Um, my, my feelings are aligned with you guys. Uh, we're 28K. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, personally, I don't think we're going to get it. Um, as far as like midterm targets, the 40, 40 to 42K area makes a lot of sense to me as well. Um, I think that would be just enough to do the trick to get people thinking we're going to get an all-time high this year and then you get kind of like that bull flag draw down slow bleed back to these levels makes makes a lot of sense i'd be looking for that in q3 um, and then looking to kind of go full risk on again in q4 but i've watched uh with so just absolutely crush shorting pepe and, and other alts as well and i think uh I saw a lot of people that haven't really discussed Bitcoin dominance like ever. Uh, I might be like in the past week kind of talking about it a lot. And it's interesting because the chart that I look at is showing a double top here. Um, there could potentially be one more like acceleration move uh, out of alts into Bitcoin, but it doesn't have to come. When you look at that chart, for me, it's pretty clear that the meat of that move that like the time to go from Bitcoin to, I mean, from alts to Bitcoin is, is long past. And, okay. uh, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of setups on all, all USD charts. Like, um, there was a, uh, um, I forgot the name. I think it's called other where it's basically all of crypto aside from the top 10 coins. 
most that chart itself is looking very much like the majority of the the mid to larger cap alts that we look at, like Sol and, and Avax, where they basically had a year in a choppy range. That some of them actually took their lows on uh, the dip a few weeks ago. Some of them, you know, made higher lows. But at the end of the day, it created the same kind of ejection move that stopped out anybody that was in that range. Uh, people hate alts, and they're talking about Bitcoin dominance and how bullish it is. Um, yeah, I think I think especially for spot buyers, uh, these alts can do two to three X's off these levels. And one of the ones that's been getting a lot of play recently uh, in regards to like the team selling, kind of becoming a meme is Chainlink. However, Chainlink fundamentally is one of the stronger cryptos. And, and I don't say that about a lot of coins, frankly. Um, but it's something that I, would, I mean, you're going to see Chainlink play a, play a factor in, in what goes forward. You look at the hat chart, it's been not, it's not just going down. It's like it went sideways forever while other things went up. Accumulation. Yeah. It looks like accumulation. Yeah. And then it basically, it blew the wave. So that wave was like over a year long. It dumps, closes outside of the range. I mean, that's like a very clear bearish signal. I was talking to my friends about it. We were watching and I'm like, I'm looking at Chainlink to kind of assess the health of like what everything else is going to do. Because if this just starts to nuke, it's, it's really not good. But if it happens to reclaim that range um, somehow, then I think it's really bullish for other alts. I'm not saying that Chainlink is going to outperform anything. Most, almost certainly there won't be other alts that outperform Chainlink. But if it's able to reclaim and that was like a bearish fakeout, it makes me super bullish on alts from like swing trade perspective. I can tell you, I can tell you anecdotally that I had big cheds on my show last week and uh, he made like he made a joke about uh wanting to be in bitcoin and why would you ever want to be in any of the older altcoins and he just said link and made a joke and i got massively like assaulted by the uh, link marines to their credit so there was still a very passionate uh and engaged community there that would push it given the opportunity that's what they're known for i mean they're always going to do that uh, i mean not not to say i'm like a late nazi or anything but like just the chart itself as I was watching it break down, we were like, all right, let's see what this does here. Like overall, like this, this doesn't look great, but if it can reclaim, that, that bodes well for everything else. The only chart that's like really concerning and it's uh BNB BTC specifically. I'll let Yeah, I think there's fundamental reasons people would be slightly nearish on on BNB yeah. right now. You've got some background noise there too, KJ. I think you stepped out into the uh, into the streets. Guys, we're going to probably wrap this up in a couple of minutes. Unless any other guests have any uh, thoughts on price action here, we'll probably move on and uh, get it going again tomorrow. Guys, you can see above there is, of course, the pinned tweet. If you're interested in advertising on the show, we are taking sponsors. You can email the address that is right above there for sure. And uh, that's basically all we got for today. I want to thank everybody, all of our awesome guests uh, for your contributions. Of course, Congressman Warren Davidson, at the beginning, always a pleasure and an honor to have him. I, you know, it always blows my mind that uh, people who are busy running our government have time to pop over and, and talk to us in our little uh, crypto spaces here, uh, which is amazing. All, all the guests really appreciate your time. Thank you, everyone. We're going to go ahead and uh, wrap it up. See you guys tomorrow, ten fifteen a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks, everyone.